Hello. Choose Trust is our regular podcast looking at how to build high trust relationships in business and the value that brings to everyone involved. I'm Stuart Meister, and together with my co-presenter Kevin Vaughan-Smith, we're writing a book for Economist Books with the same name, Choose Trust. So, we thought we'd meet and interview leaders who put some of these principles into practice and hear their real-world experiences of doing so and the value that brought. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe and, of course, please do share it. Welcome to this our latest podcast in the Choose Trust series. My name is Kevin, Kevin Vaughan-Smith. I'm the Joint Managing Director of Mutual Value. I'm joined today by... Stuart Meister, the Joint Managing Director of Mutual Value. So, with two Joint Managing Directors uh, on the scene, I'd like to introduce our guest. Our guest is Richard Postance. Richard is Head of Clients and Transformation for Accenture UK. Uh, he has a degree in uh, a master's degree in engineering and computer sciences from Oxford. He's had a very successful career in consulting, including 10 years at EY prior to uh, Accenture. So, Rich, welcome to the podcast. We're really looking forward to hearing your experience of how trust has helped you build relationships internally and externally with clients, and specifically the kind of behaviors you've seen that create trust uh, in that way. So, welcome, Rich. Hello. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Stuart. It's a great topic. Excited to be here. Good. Well, let's get into it. So, Rich, look, um, we've known each other a long time, and um, I, I know that trust is at the, the centre of your, your beliefs and the way that you operate. Do you want to just outline a little bit more about your role and, and how you've arrived in this position and your thoughts on that? I remember as a relatively new consultant, I came from selling software actually. So I uh, arrived in consulting uh, in my mid thirties and um, I had this intent and my intent was to help the client solve a problem. And I was really focused on the outcome. And I remember one day I got a call from a CFO. I called a CFO and he said, Richard, I know I dread your calls because I know that when you call, it's because you're going to want something. Hmm. harsh <laughs> harsh and he was absolutely right you know those moments when you can either brush feedback off or you can actually really face into it truth was that I did only call him when I wanted something and I remember another client saying Richard he's good but a bit commercial by which he meant I was self-interested and those two pieces of feedback if you stop and reflect and allow them in you go, is that your aspiration as a leader? And so I remember sometime later, I picked up one of our largest accounts. Um, for many years, we had a successful relationship with technology. We were a prime supplier. And yet we were almost target number one. We perhaps become a little complacent. We dropped a couple of things, but we were perceived as people who, when things went wrong, reach for the contract. We were perceived as uh, people that when push came to shove, 
we would have all the data that ensured it wasn't our fault. And so you just get this sense of, um, we were all right, Jack. You realize that although we were there in partnership, we were all personally or collectively very well protected with robust execution. And that was where that phrase is, there's more than enough work, there's just not enough trust came from. And it led to really approaching, as I picked up the account, approaching it quite differently. So for example, we turned off sales. And they, well, what do you mean you turned off sales? Well, we, um, we weren't, I said, right, for the next quarter, we are not taking them any sales pitches. You can't sell something to someone that doesn't trust it. We had to return to it being them feeling a pull. We had to let our delivery do the talking. And actually, we had to make some changes on the account because although the commercial discipline, the operational discipline that was very important was actually driving this distrust massively because it was consistently putting our interests ahead of the client. Does that make sense to you? Totally. Yeah, so I'm, common. But when I was going to make that point, uh, so lots of businesses would be celebrating having a salesperson who can get in front of people to pursue self-interest, as it were, who were, to use your word, commercial. They would think that that was a real strength of their organization. So why do you think it is so popular to, to take that approach and, and what's wrong with it? Because it means they only buy from you if they absolutely have to. And most organizations have many other things that they would like to sell. So if they only come to you for the things they have to buy from you, it's a bit of a resentment relationship. Um, and they'll actually look for substitutes and alternatives. So if you're already a large supplier, it's a really unwise position, I would suggest. I was going to say something a little bit more fruity, but uh, I don't think it lasts very long, right? Is it, It's a short-term boost, right? Make sure we don't take a loss on that contract. Because what happens is it doesn't work. So I remember some years later at this same client, we'd been asked to, we were delivering well, and another vendor had issued, for what started off as a 17 million pound piece of work, came back with a change request for 75 million pounds. Mm. You can imagine the stakeholders were horrified. And they basically went, guys, we're incumbent. This is just, your, your bad behavior resulted in this. And they came to me and said, would you consider stepping in? No RFP, sole source. Well, I said, well, maybe. Let's see if we can set you for success. If I can do this better than continuing with that, then yes. But if we can't, then you've got it. Then that's absolutely fair game. And so we create a staged process. So again, you could have gone, yeah, I'll take it. I'll trap them in. But instead, we created a staged process over six weeks. At the end of every two weeks, are you happy to continue? Are you happy to continue? And almost that giving them the freedom, demonstrating that we weren't there to trap them. We want them to make a good decision that they felt comfortable about. Um, and we were asked to step in at scale. You can imagine that for them, that was a huge risk they were taking. And so if you want people to take a risk with you, they've got to trust you. Absolutely. And Richard, let me just, Stuart, I know you're going to come in just one second. Just, there's one question I have to ask about that. Is it just that Rich Postance has the position that you can think and act like that or what is it that and is that across the organization hell no 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 
Um, there are a set of account beliefs that are essential. Um, uh, you can't be man of the match on the losing team. All right. There is no, that it just is just one of the ground rules to be on the account. You can't sell and have success yourself and just leave everyone else behind. Those people don't tend to thrive on the account. Um, instead, what you find is that trust was built by people consistently putting the client first when they had the opportunity to be self-interested. You know, I'm not sure that's good value for you. Those words like, well, have you thought about what if you buy that from them? They're better at it. Those sense of things, and it is, it's, it is brilliant when you get clients that recognize it. There are some clients that don't. It's true. Some clients want to treat you transactionally, and you end up with that doom loop. But when you get it right, you find clients that are looking to trust, and you can, you can repay that trust with great outcomes, then you end up with a virtuous circle, I'd suggest. The, the question I was going to ask, just to complete that story, so you, because I think the value that gets created by this is something we really want to dig down on. Now, you, you gave a great example that years later, they came to, you had amazing outcome, which was they came to you with a very big contract. But what I'm interested is in, in a slightly shorter time frame. So you, you took sales off that account. You just let the delivery do the talking. You got people, I guess, on that same account to have that kind of intention you just described, which is to put the client's interest first. How how quickly did that result in any value creation for you or benefit to you, if it did at all? And the second question is, how much pressure did you come under from, as it were, your colleagues uh, back at head office to stop it? You know, you, okay, you can do it for a quarter, but you can't keep it up for much longer. What happened in the kind of shorter term is what I'm interested in. Um, when I arrived, there was a legacy platform, legacy technology platform, and we were the main supporters of that legacy platform. The stated intent was to go beyond both. Their defined future was to be free from this technology platform and free from us. So uh, it seems crazy to try and sell in that environment. So what happened was the mood changed to, okay, this is something we can do. Starting to trust. Now, the truth is that was the aspiration was it, seven years ago now. And we, you know, and we have a very positive relationship now. So I think, Stuart, that sometimes a lack of trust can get a situation to be so bad that if you really face up to the truth, the consequence of not doing so is massively material. Now, in a generic sense, if the account's going fine, then there's probably a level of trust. It's almost that I think there's a very strong correlation, in my opinion, between trust and account performance. As one client put it, well, I'm just interested in that because it, it, which way around does it come? In other words, does the account perform better when you can establish trust or is it, or are you saying that when the account's going well, then it's easy to be trusted and to be trusting? No, I disagree. I think you build trust in some of the most difficult situations. Agreed. Is that, hmm. is that and actually it's nearly impossible to have scale without trust. Um, you know, you could articulate that most sales processes are, do they trust you? Right, you want to go and transform an industry, you know, your 
you know, your supply chain and finance with a big technology program. What you're really doing is establishing trust with the business users that you know what you're on about and will, will understand their needs. You're establishing trust with a finance person that you're credible to transform their part of the business. You're building trust with the CIO that you will design something or create something that will work in their context. I think that almost every meeting can be framed in a, your aspiration is to be trusted too. And trust is a combination of intent and execution. So, well, so okay. sorry, Stuart. Um, well, one of the things I just want to pick up on, uh, you, you, you talked to earlier about, you know, delivery leading the way and, and all that. But our experience in the market is that many organizations are quite fractured in the way that they work that there's not a lot of internal collaboration going on. And, you know, indeed, you know, they're not, even to the level of different services are not sold by one individual or the delivery unit, you know, the, the, the old phrase, who sold you this then, right? What's your experience of, of that kind of fracture? And how does that get resolved if you can by, by building trust? It's a great question, Kevin. And the reason I joined Accenture was because we have the ability to make the biggest promises. We can define a strategy, we can change an organization, we can deliver some technology and deliver the operations that can underpin it. What an amazing story. The issue is, of course, there are four, five, however many business units, in theory, each of which have independent objectives. Um, and it is really hard to bring them together. However, that's what I found is indeed the secret source. But again, shared intent and alignment is, you're right, there are narrow self-interested business leaders in every organization, I'm sure, that set narrow targets for their bit of the business. And the assumption being, if each bit of the business optimizes their bit, that will optimize the end-to-end, -end. it doesn't work. And again, I think it's quite straightforward. Generally, you've got to get people to meet as humans. Share what is it you're trying to achieve? What does good look like? Connect to a client intent and basically umpire out people that do narrow self-interest. But there are tactics too, right? So in the account, we used to have um, uh, every opportunity in our magic CRM database began consulting, colon, technology, colon, operations, colon. So even before you talked about it, it was defined in terms of ownership and whose it was rather than part of their business in terms of part of what they were looking to achieve. But the other thing is, is that many times the internal incentive mechanisms of uh, businesses suggest that you can succeed solo. You can be man of the match on the losing team. So you do need to use your leadership power and authority to keep people safe from the unintended consequences of incentives. Uh, and if you you need to find a way to get sufficient subjectivity or sufficient authority to ensure that those allocations work, because you have to, as a leader, keep your team safe so that they can get on with collaborating rather than needing to defend themselves. Does that make sense? Mm. I wonder how much you leverage that, Richard, because um, what you've just described is an uh, I'm sure an ideal, and I'm sure that you you personally are someone that absolutely delivers that sort of integrated promise aligned to a client need and a client uh, objective. Um, I wonder how much 
that is part of the story you tell to the client and explain to the client and that the client realizes is making a difference to them or how much that's just under the bonnet as it were and it's not something that's there's an assumption that it's taking place in all firms of course and as you say more often than not it's not so i wonder how much you you make that part of as it were the accenture story when you're 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 talking to a client absolutely i mean it's our usp so if i can't get our usp to work i'm probably in the wrong firm so it becomes essential um there's an interesting question on governance and risk management and precision and performance management and those sorts of things. Um, but we're lucky that there's enough subjectivity in terms of the right behaviours as well as the right numbers. And that hasn't always been the case. And allied to that, if I may, you talked earlier on about um, what you're trying to do with every contract that you're trying to win is essentially establish trust, which makes sense, particularly in large business to business, because they're going to be you know, complex and fundamental assignments, aren't they? So people have to trust that you're a great partner. How much of that, though, is, you know, when you walk in the room, you are Accenture. You know, it's people used to say you don't get sacked for hiring IBM. I'm sure Accenture is now absolutely in that bracket. So there are a few firms that carry credibility beyond, as it were, the individuals that walk in the room. Or, and, and I wonder how much of it is that contributes to it and how much of it is then down to the individual, individual behaviours of those that are there representing Accenture. Um, I would actually give it your third, which is I'm very lucky with my clients. I seem to find people that are that respond positively to a virtuous trust circle. So I think that the brand will get you through the door, but it won't get you the contract. I would argue that uh, you won't give it to someone that you don't trust. Mm. Um, people could argue, well, they'll trust our commercial incentive to achieve the outcome again, I find risk reward because you end up with misaligned incentives. You're not careful if you get paid out of the savings, every pound extra that you try and encourage the client to get, they say, was well, that because you want to line your pocket and materially increase my risk? I'm quite a fan of the um, a subjective um, risk reward payment. You know, basically the score is one to five, but if you score us anything less than a four or a five, you have to explain how we're missing your objective. You were missing your expectations because it encourages communication. It encourages that, right? Where are we missing? What could we do better? So I feel old and grizzled, but these days you do get that sense that your brand can get you through the door, but it's got to be about humility and recognizing that you don't have a right to be trusted. It has mm. to be earned. I think is a key stage in that, Stuart. So I think I'm, the combination is one, I've been very lucky with clients, um, but two, that sense that you don't have a right to be there and you've got to earn it. I, I, I find that an interesting interesting uh, idea that you've been lucky with clients. It is, you must be one of the luckiest people I meet, uh, I've met rather. But I want to pick up something. You talked about some people want to be transactional and at the client interface, not everything's going to go right, right? In the, either the client doesn't do what they're supposed to do or some unexpected thing happens or we didn't quite understand the scope of work or whatever. Something not going to go right. And there's, for lots of people who have a transactional mindset, they then fall into a very defensive position, clients and, and, and providers, service providers. 
And we see that a lot where people revert to a defensive transactional position and trust gets broken down at, at, at that point. Again, I'm interested in, have you seen that? And Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, that was where, I mean, is the, a client put this very nicely to me, says Richard, look, if this fails, I don't want to see you in the job center and me driving past in the car. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't want to but see equally, you. He doesn't say you're not going to be there. He just doesn't want to see uh, you. But, but, but equally, it's not cool if I'm in the job center and you're driving past in the car. Yeah. If this fails, we're both in the queue together. And it's a nice way of saying, right, it's either win-win or lose-lose. But aiming for win-lose, where we win and the client loses, is a really, really dangerous strategy. Um, and whether that loss is loss of face, loss of uh, money, loss of status, you've just got to bear in mind that they're human too. Well, that's an interesting thing. And, and how do you help your junior colleagues to remember that kind of thing? What is it that you're doing as a leader to those people to keep reminding them of that stuff? Well, um, remind my junior colleagues, remind myself, right? I think it's just an instinctive moment, which is the, uh, what have I done wrong? I don't want to get blamed. Find me the data that shows it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think, like I say, um, is you need a client you can pick the phone up to. There's another client quote, actually. I'd forgotten that. When we think about that step in, they said, when something goes wrong, company X gather in a conference room to figure out what to tell us. When something goes wrong with you, you come to us to figure out what to do. Mm. There's something fundamental in that. You know our trust model. And the third dimension of our trust model is capability, by which you mean joint capability. And it's a reference to the total interdependence of, as it were, supplier and client in the success of a project. It has to be utterly interdependent. One can't, the value is created together. It can't be done separately. And yet many suppliers in our experience think themselves as external suppliers providing a service almost uh, you know to a client not with a client do, do you win more because you phrase it differently does that help you win more business do you think or is it just once you once you're in there and people see that's the way you work then you're, you're retaining and growing more where's the value i think trust comes from words matching deeds you know how many proposals say we know you you can trust us to yada 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 um what is special in my belief about accenture is in its dna sometimes it it needs deliberation to make a promise because it absolutely understands if it makes a promise it expects to deliver it um and i think that's a cultural thing again lucky to be here um but it's a whole lot easier to build trust when you have an organization that its mindset is to deliver promises. When I think about other types of organization, um, uh, so typically your big four is more about, I will deliver insight. I will deliver you clever stuff. And therefore, you know, what's important is to tell them something new, tell them something they don't know. And I do think it's really interesting looking at the cultures of the different companies that provide services, big or small. Um, and what is their fundamental belief about what they're able to do well? And it surprises me more that more clients don't actually go, 
what's this organization what what makes it tick what do the cool people do in this organization interesting really interesting so just stepping back for a moment you you've talked about Accenture and, and it you being a really good fit because it has this kind of culture what do you see around you that the business is doing to maintain that culture what are the what are the visual reinforcements or non-visual any reinforcement to say this is us and this is what we're about i think actually it is about um it's about that idea of actions and words matching it's got a practical sort of organization so for example our um lgbtq plus statistics are very positive we're highly rated by stonewall now what why does that matter in this context it matters because creating a place where it's expected to do the right thing and speak up if it doesn't that sense of what me it means to do the right thing is really important and that's why i think some of the um inclusion diversity uh elements i think are a very strong proxy for alignment of words and deeds and a culture that thinks that words and deeds need to be aligned is also one that doesn't that ensures it only makes promises it can deliver now layers above that there's things like modern leadership and self-awareness and all of that but i think at its core is an organization that insists on alignment between words and deeds so that, hard as that is to teach but that doesn't sound like something that only accenture can do that sounds like something that a company of any size um so you can align words and deeds but and it's real hard accenture is a delivery organization okay it is it delivers strategies it delivers operations it delivers technological outcomes it delivers new businesses um and that delivery mentality is reflected in the values of the firm right it's the cool people are the people who have delivered big things or helped clients achieve big things um it is quite pragmatic and quite outcome focused in that in that way so again people can say it but if you've seen a couple of client organizations or your own organization it's really hard to change those core beliefs about who the cool people are the cool's the wrong word who what's worthy of respect in this organization and would Accenture in your experience be willing to walk away from a client that that doesn't value what you value yeah definitely well typically we wouldn't win it um so for example one you know if we are so one of our um if someone really wants the cheapest we're rarely the cheapest, but a way of being the cheapest is minimizing scope, right? Eliminating scope, knowing that sometime later they have to come back to you with a CR. It's just not how we roll, right? And so um, working away from clients, you'd rarely walk away because you wouldn't say out loud, we don't trust you. But the lack of that trust would mean that when you came to bid for something, your solution wouldn't be a great fit, would it? If they haven't trusted you to tell you what they really want, then the solution you create wouldn't work. So you'd end up just not winning. So I think that's my point that says, if you're not trusted enough, you're probably not going to win. But simply, yes, we do though, I think about it. 
do we believe that we would be trusted by this organization to achieve this kind of scale is a classic qualification question that says, do we have a chance of winning? So we do on an everyday basis walk away from stuff where we don't think there's enough trust to succeed. Stuart, can I just pick, yeah, I just want to pick up on that. This is a really interesting point, particularly in terms of advice, perhaps, to other people, because that some of the people who might listen to this or read the book we're writing may not be in a, a leadership position where, uh, or in a kind of company where they feel comfortable, able to walk away from business or to uh, walk away from a job where they don't trust or feel trusted by the person that is their boss. And you've, you've really expressed very strong views about how you want to work with clients, how you win clients, how you lead your team and so on. And I wonder if you want any reflection, particularly as perhaps as you've come up the ranks, about whether what people what someone might do when they're either faced with a client who's utterly transactional and is not trusting, but is just demanding and 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 perhaps not doing it, or indeed with a boss who is not trusting, is not behaving with high trust behaviors and is not either trusting or trustworthy, perhaps. What, when you face dilemmas like that, or what advice might you give someone else that might be facing those sorts of issues? Firstly, sounds like they're having a really crap day. All right. <laughs> yeah, true. More than a day, maybe. More than a day, right? It sucks when this happens. I need this deal for my number. If I don't get this number, I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Right? We've all been there. Um, or this boss doesn't get me. Yeah. I found intent really works. So if I said to you, Stuart, Stuart, look, I get that you want the best price, but there's going to have to, we need to change the way we work a little bit. So if you can share more about what you need, I'll get you a better solution. Okay. You don't have to choose it, but I'll get you a better solution. Okay. If you insist on being transactional, then I don't think I can get you a great answer. I'm probably not going to be able to win. So I should probably put my resources elsewhere. How do you think, what, how would you prefer we go ahead, Stuart? You know, you basically, you use it as a genuine test question to the client that if they really want transactional. And most people, if, you're, if we're having a conversation about trust, you probably don't work for the cheapest supplier, okay? Because the cheapest supplier is going to try and win on price, usually, right. rather than anything else. So if that's the conversation you're having, then you need to either go, you either need to build enough rapport that they're going to choose you from, you know, it might be a small marginal price difference, but it's not going to be a race to the bottom. And if you can't establish it, it probably tells you that you would actually be denying, you'll be in denial, right? Yo, I can do an RFP for the next three months. They're never going to buy you. They've added you as a late addition. They don't trust you enough to fully brief you on what the solution looks like and give you a chance to test it like the incumbents. In truth, it probably brings forward the inevitable in the sales situation by that trust question. And it may be in certain situations, um, it's a massively formal procurement. Everybody's got a, a playing field. There is no trust. Different conversation about why government contracts often end so badly, but let's come back to that. Um, but is, it, is that the kind of business you want to be doing in a work context? Um, it's one of the best things about working for a consultancy, actually. If you're unhappy, it's cool. you can change your boss without changing your company. Um, but joking aside, um, I do think that someone having your back is a fundamental part of what you need. I say that to take risks, you need a strong foundation. Okay, the more confident you feel in your role, the more the better able you are to take 
good risks. Let's try that bold approach. You know, let's see how it goes. If you're feeling confident, if you're not feeling confident, you really aim for incremental, don't you? You aim for the safe, you aim for the uninspiring. So again, to that person that's not feeling that they're, able, they're having a purely transactional basis. First of all, I'd say have a conversation because trust is two way. It is the look, this doesn't really work for me. What I'd really like to be able to do is to share with what I'm finding difficult and you'd be able to help me rather than you tear a strip off me. He wouldn't say that, but you see what I mean? You would have an attempt to establish a trusted dynamic because they may say, well, I found you intimidating. I thought you were a great salesperson. I thought that was how I was supposed to manage a salesperson. I thought that was how I was supposed to manage a leader. They're human too. And just says, I'd really like to create this sort of dynamic. Would that work for you? And if they roll their eyes and say, get out of here, then you've probably got your answer, right? <laughs> you know, if, I'm, if I can just uh, provide a commentary on that, 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 that answer, Richard, is exactly why you've not been lucky in finding clients that recognize the value in all this, because you, you, as we all know, you've framed the relationship in exactly that way. And you've had that kind of conversation with people that has led to a situation where you can, you, you're, you know, it's a, it's a much more trusting, high trust relationship based on that sort of open conversation about the way in which you're going to do business together, not simply the function of what we're going to do and how much it's going to cost. And that's that for me is one of the critical takeaways from this conversation, I think, is exactly that, that you, you're, you're, you, in, even if you're selling, even if you're uh, an employee, you help frame the relationship in the way in which you engage with the, the people you're engaging with. I think that that's a very powerful point. Thank you. But I would also add, you have to be okay with the answer no. The guy says, look, Richard, all I need are bodies and yours are 50 pounds a day more expensive than anyone else's. Are you going to match it or shut up? He, that's perfectly an acceptable answer. Okay, but it gives me the information I need. It'll stop me messing around, going, dressing around, going, ah, but these ones for the extra 50, look, they'll make you a coffee or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's about bringing information forward. But he hasn't, that person hasn't changed who they are in that conversation. You've just discovered a bit more that helps you decide what to do. Getting clarity. So, yeah. So, look, I, I guess time is against us in all these things uh, and we really appreciate the input what, what i'm going to take away as well as what stuart's just highlighted is that remember everybody is human and extend trust to people but do it on the base of building shared clarity what are our what are our goals together both internally with your team and others you're trying to collaborate with and the client and i think the other thing you've done is you've made it You've made it all sound very straightforward, which it actually is, if you've got the right intent and the courage to pursue relationships based on trust. So I don't know if you if, if you wanted to have any a final summary yourself, Rich, but I'd just like to say thank you on our behalf and that of our listeners for the time you've given us today. Well, it's very generous of you both, but I think it's worth, this has been a journey for me, right? I've made some horrendous mistakes on the way and I've had some great training Okay, Kevin, I know we've gone back a bit, but some of those training that helps me to understand intent, execution, you know, I've had one piece of advice, it's what is your intent for this interaction? If there's one thing that, you know, there's sometimes there are pieces of training that really make a difference. 
understanding intent and understanding this, getting your head into it so that, yeah, I know that you asked me some questions and I made it look easy to go, how do I reframe a conversation in the way that says, what, how do we want the relationship to work? First time I did it, I was bricking myself. What if they say this? What if they say the other? Um, so a bit of practice doesn't do any harm. And it, it, like most things is the more you practice it, the easier it gets. And so I just wanted to go, I'm still on a massive learning curve. I'll end up retired before I get any good at it. But it's, it's fun getting it right. And it is more fun doing work with people who trust you. I think it's a great finish. Thank, thank you very much, Rich and uh, Stuart. Yeah, thanks very much, Rich. It was very, very insightful, really helpful. Great. Cheerio.